0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is a continuation in measure of the series that was dealing with John's Gospel and its relationship to the mystery as recorded in the epistle to the Ephesians. This time we are considering uh, both positively and negatively the relationship of the epistle to the Hebrews, and I want to read together. Hebrews the 8th chapter as our reading. Hebrews the 8th chapter. After seven chapters of writing, the Apostle stops and says, Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the Son. We have such an high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, whereof it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if it were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them upon in their hearts, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbour, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now, you will remember that we looked last time at the reference to the mystery that we have in Romans the 16th chapter. And now we are dealing with another aspect of um, problem arising out of the relationship of one epistle to the other because there have been some who have said that Hebrews is the climax of all the teaching in the New Testament, and that all that we call Ephesian truth is there. Now you see, what they have done, they have seen that Christ is ascended and seated, but that isn't Ephesian truth, because you get the ascension of Christ in the Gospels. You get the ascension of Christ in the first chapter of Acts. What is Ephesian truth is the marvellous, overwhelming fact That some of us are associated with him in his ascension. Now that's just the opposite from what we get in Hebrews. So should we look at Hebrews the ninth chapter just to get that point? He goes on in this ninth chapter from the one we just read and says that associated with that new covenant and that covenant was this tabernacle. And he goes on to say, verse six, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest, now is the word, alone. Once every year. That's his point. In Hebrews, Christ is seated at the right hand. In Ephesians, Christ is seated at the right hand. But in Hebrews, the emphasis is, is alone. And there isn't the slightest thought that anyone in Hebrews ever dreamed that they would be reckoned to be seated together with him where he sits at the right hand of God. That's the staggering statement of Ephesians. So anyone who merely says because Hebrews speaks about the ascended and seated Christ it's all one and the same with Ephesians has left out the one thing that makes all the difference in the world. I can almost feel Peter would have a faint if he'd been told by anybody that not merely a Gentile would ever hope to be seated in that heavenly holiest of all, but even the most righteous, godly Hebrew that he could think of would never dream to put himself there. Well, none of us have put ourselves there. God has. So, you see, we are right, I think, to contend earnestly for the faith which has been entrusted to us, even though we do not fight about words to no profit or manifest a contentious spirit. I haven't spoken or wasted time on arguing and proving whether Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews or not. For the moment, it doesn't matter. Uh, I believe there's abundant evidence that he did. Uh, But whoever wrote it, it's incorporated in Scripture and it's got all the signs about it uh, that it is a part of inspired Scripture. One of the reasons why there's no name of Paul in it is very obvious because you will remember in Galatians, the second chapter, when they had a conference together, Peter, James and John recognised that just as surely they were the apostles of the circumcision, which is to do with the people of Israel, so surely Paul and Barnabas, they were apostles to the uncircumcision, and they gave them the right hand of fellowship, that one should go the way appointed by God for them, one should go the way to the other. Well now, Paul as an ambassador, Paul, as an apostle, speaks with authority when he writes the epistle to the Romans. He says in that epistle, I magnify mine office. That's right. But he was only speaking as a private Christian when he wrote to the Hebrews. Because that was Peter's ministry. It's like an ambassador in France. Taking a journey to visit somebody in Germany. Well, he could speak of it as an individual and express his opinion, but it wouldn't be authoritative. He would be intruding if he did that. So Paul is recognising that he's now on somebody else's territory. And you remember that Peter acknowledges that sometime or another, Paul had written to the Hebrews, and Peter says that some things hard to be understood in what Paul has to say. So that's just in passing. But now, I read as our lesson the 8th chapter of Hebrews. And this is almost central in this epistle. And it quotes the Old Testament very fully. So I put it like this. Supposing you were to be asked, what would be the central feature of the epistle of the Hebrews? You'd have to say, well, the new covenant. The new covenant that's explained as being addressed to the self same people that broke the old covenant, the people of Israel. What would you say was the distinctive character or the distinctive word to differentiate Ephesians from all the rest? Or you say that's the dispensation of the mystery that had never been part of the Old Testament Scriptures, that had been hidden in God and only revealed when Israel proved effective. So now we've got two, as it were, uh, bases. Hebrews is based squarely upon a new covenant which is embedded in the Old Testament and addressed to the people of Israel the tribe of Judah, and Ephesians is the outworking of a wonderful purpose of God which is spoken of as the dispensation of the mystery, which has never been part of Old Testament scripture that goes back before the foundation of the world. Hebrews speaks about since the foundation of the world in chapter 9, but Ephesians goes before the foundation of the world. Now these things are not trifles, They are the very essence of these epistles. And then while we have this passage before us, if you were to go through the epistle to the Hebrews and mark the number of times the word priest and high priest comes, you would find it came a tremendous number of times. But if you went through Galatians, that's the first epistle as far as I know, Galatians, Thessalonians 1 and 2, Corinthians 1 and 2, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, never a reference to a priest in the whole of Paul's ministry. Now, are we going to charge Paul with having slipped up? I was only looking at a bound volume of the Berean just now and I noticed that I had to say there was a slip. And I'd want to remember that if we are reprinting an article so that I don't perpetuate the mistake, but I put the thing right. Do you think that the Apostle Paul said to himself when his work was done, Dear, oh dear, oh dear, I never referred to Christ as a priest. You can't believe that. It was intentional, if there's a spirit of God superintending. Now, a priest is essential for anything to do with Hebrews. But according to the omission, we have in Christ as the head of the church all that a priest could be and a good bit more. You see, Christ is prophet, priest and king. Well, as head, he's prophet and priest and king. And you do remember in the Old Testament there are those who offered sacrifices who were not priests. Job wasn't a priest, but he offered sacrifices for his children. Abraham wasn't a priest, but he offered sacrifices. A priesthood started with the tabernacle. And the tabernacle dominates the thought in Hebrews. But in the epistle to the Ephesians, it isn't a tabernacle. It's the central holiest place or the temple that we read there. So all these things being put together in corresponding lists help you to see that there's a distinctive parallel, but the parallel is not identical. They're marching together. And Christ The seated priest for Israel is the seated head for the church. And so they have their distinctive characteristics. Well, then again, you have these people addressed in this epistle as knowing who the fathers were. Chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Unto the fathers. In chapter 3, verse 9. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works, oh, yes, 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 they're Israel, they're not anything to do with us. If anything's wrong, we suddenly wake up to the fact that it literally means what it says. If they happen to be blessings, then people say, oh, that doesn't belong literally, we must spiritualise that, that belongs to us. The fathers belong to Israel. And Paul has said so in Romans, the ninth chapter, when he says, Israel according to the flesh. To whom pertain the adoption, the giving of the law, the service, and the fathers. And so when we read the Apostle Peter standing up, he says, Men, brethren, and fathers. Well now, the fathers belong to Israel. When you read the epistle to the Ephesians, you're told over and over again that the Gentiles are in view. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Do you know how many times the word Gentile comes in the epistle to the Hebrews? It never comes at all. They're never once mentioned. Well, if you opened a letter and you read it right through and you never found your name in it at all, you might suspect, even in ordinary everyday correspondence, that you were reading somebody else's letter. We do sometimes. I'm guilty. If I've got a pile of letters and I'm sitting having my breakfast, I rip them open. I say, oh, there's one for mother. Is he? Well, it doesn't matter. We haven't got anything secret. But there it is. I'll put it on one side. I acknowledge I've done it. But you see, what's happened with some people with the Scriptures, they've picked up a letter in the Scriptures, they've ripped it open, they've gone on reading and they've forgotten it wasn't addressed to them. The address is on the envelope. And although we are permitted by our Father to read the correspondence of our fellows in the faith, it doesn't follow that everything that, uh, that in a letter that is interesting means that you've got to go do it. Always. You can learn from it but you leave it to the one to whom it is addressed. In contrast with the fact that the word Gentile is never used in the epistle to the Hebrews, the word people comes about 13 times. Uh, Chapter 2, 17. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. You're not left guessing who the sins of the people can refer to. It must refer to this people. And chapter 4, 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And just to get the last one, there's quite a number of them. Chapter 13, verse 12. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, What is that accident that he keeps on saying the people, whereas in Ephesians he says the Gentiles. And so if we are bound by these scriptures, if we believe these words are superintended by the Holy Ghost, well, we've practically proved our point already by the series of things we've looked at that the epistle to the Hebrews is addressed to the Hebrews. It is based upon a new covenant and has no relationship to the dispensation of the mystery which is addressed to the Gentiles. Only, of course, we can find apparently connections and shut our eyes to some of these discrepancies. Shall we again consider another feature? You cannot read the epistle to the Hebrews, the first chapter, without being conscious that over and over and over again you say the word angels. Verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. Verse 5, unto which of the angels that he at any time Verse 6, again when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, and then all the angels of God worship him. Verse 7, and of the angels, oh angels, angels, angels through this epistle. There's Chapter 1, 5, 6, 7, 13, chapter 2, 2, 5, 7, 9, 16, chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 13, 2. Look at them, angels. Well, if you know the history of the people of Israel, you know that they were associated with the ministry of angels right from the beginning. Angels appear with regard to the birth of Isaac, to Abraham, and to uh, Sarah. Angels are there in connection with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels are administering the law at Mount Sinai. Angels are there in the days of David. Angels come right through into the Gospels, the herald angels at the birth of Christ. The angel at the Ascension. The angels at the second coming. Angel ministry all the way whenever you get the people of Israel. And they're dropped. No angels in Ephesians. No angels in Philippians. If I said no angels in Colossians, you would correct me. But the only reference in in Colossians is the worshipping of angels, which he says is absurd. Set them aside. That's all. No angels in Second Timothy. But what we have instead of angels in the prison ministry of the Apostle Paul is far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Now, angels are described in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? Sent forth to minister, for them who shall be heirs of salvation. They are servants of glory. An angel is a messenger. We today speak about angels as though the word angel means something which we say is angelic, you know, a lovely face or something. But a messenger need not be very lovely to look at. His importance is that he's a faithful messenger. He brings the message, he discharges his duty. And the angels were lovely because they were not fallen. They were the perfect creation of God, and they were used by him. Some angels did fall. But these are ministering spirits, ministering, serving. Whereas principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, they are the aristocracy of glory. And then the marvel of it is that poor, far-off Gentiles like ourselves have a position with Christ far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Well, what's the, what's the idea then of introducing angels into our calling? They're not in it at all. So you see, we're not losing anything. We're gaining by observing these distinctions. And then when you get this emphasis upon the fact that he ascended up far above all heavens, One I had in view said, when I read that he ascended up far above all heavens, then I saw that Hebrews was teaching Ephesian truth. It's all one and the same. But what I've already asked you to consider is that the stress in Hebrews is that he entered into heaven, holiest of all, alone, by himself. And the extreme difference between Hebrews and Ephesians is that the seated Christ is there in both of them. The seated Christ is at the same right hand of the same God, but in Hebrews He's alone, and in Ephesians He has His people with Him, seated together with Him, by the very Word of God. Well, then we can think of other features. Um, we read in chapter two this statement in uh, verse fourteen. He is a very wonderful foreshadowing of the fact, or um, taking up the fact that Christ is the kinsman-redeemer, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through their fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now that's a very blessed passage, and we can see that Christ, in the epistle to the Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians, was flesh and blood for our saints, as well as it was flesh and blood for Israel's saints. But look at the way it goes on here. That's not what he teaches here. Verse 16, For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took upon him the seed of Abraham. It doesn't mean to say that he wasn't made of the seed of man, going right back to Genesis verse 3, where you and I come in. But Hebrews is quite satisfied to limit it. That if he could prove that this one who became flesh and blood and a Redeemer took upon him the um, seed of Abraham, he's done all he wants to do. But there's nobody here going to object in Hebrews because they were rejoicing to think that they were the seed of Abraham and he is their kinsman Redeemer. So you see, the more you look at it, the more it bears out the one thought that he had the Hebrews, literally the Hebrews in mind, and the Gentile didn't come into the story at all. You and I can read with profit the epistle to the Hebrews, and it's a part of all scripture that is written for our guidance. But we don't put ourselves into all scripture. We can't put ourselves under the law of Mount Sinai, because it happens to be written in the book of, uh, of Moses. We can't put ourselves into the Sermon on the Mount that says the meat shall inherit the earth unless we're going to forfeit the heavenly places. We can read them all with advantage. But they're all written for a specific purpose and should be kept intact. Well now, the um, three points that were brought forward as almost proving the case uh, in this one that I have in mind. A friend who used to be connected with our work but has hived off and taken his own line. He said he found three passages in the epistle to the Hebrews which proved that he was speaking of one and the same thing as the epistle to the Ephesians. And here they are. Heirs, oh you don't sound the H in there, I I mustn't sound the H's whether or not I get into trouble anyhow. Chapter 6, verse 17. Wherein God willing, more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. And in chapter thirteen, three we have the body. Uh, top, no, chapter chapter thirteen. Where is that one? Three, okay. Eh? Three. No. Oh, that's right. Yes, chapter thirteen, three. Remember them which are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. And then we have in uh, chapter three, verse one chapter Three, verse one, these words Wherefore holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession Christ Jesus. Now he said, heirs, body, partakers I go back to Ephesians three and there you have got heirs, body and partakers that's proof that Hebrews and Ephesians are all one and the same. Let's have a look Ephesians three. Verse 6. That the Gentiles, oh my, that's introduced a word that doesn't come in Hebrews, isn't it? That's a bit awkward. He's speaking in Hebrews, of Hebrews never mentions Gentiles. He's speaking in Ephesians of Gentiles, and never mentions the Jew here. So what do we do about it? Well, I think if we're going to abide by the teaching of Scripture, we'll leave it as its written. Right. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. There's the one word. The same body. There's the second word. Partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, that's a third. Now, he said that proved to him that because in, Eph- in Ephesians 3 we got heirs, body, and partakers, and in Hebrews we got heirs, body, and partakers, it's all one and the same thing. Isn't that strange? You'd, you'd imagine that um, if that man who had that idea suddenly got a legacy left him by some friend of his, He'd say, heirs? Well, it doesn't matter to me. Anybody can be it. I don't mind. You see, you know, it belongs to certain people. So let's look at this again, shall we, a little more carefully. Look about these heirs in chapter 6, Hebrews again. Chapter 6, verse 17. He's referring to an Old Testament passage here. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. You go back to Genesis 22. He's referring to something that's written in the scriptures, the writer of Hebrews, and Genesis 22 is the passage that fits. Abraham has gone to that extreme length of obeying God to take his son Isaac up to that mountain and then his hand is stayed. You remember that when we were dealing with other passages, I quoted from Dickens when Micorba was said, somebody said to Micorba, let's begin at the beginning and old Micawber said, nonsense, let's begin at the end. Well, you see, if you do that in many cases, you don't make mistakes. All the things that have been said against God that tempted Abraham to murder his son. But supposing we looked at the end first and then said, God said, it's all right, Abraham. Now I know thou fearest God. Look, I've prepared all the time. You're never going to offer your son. I wouldn't let you. But I was waiting to see how far you'd go. When we see the end, there was a ram caught by his horns in the thicket there waiting for Abraham. But Abraham didn't know it. That's where he had to trust without being able to see. Genesis 22, 16. Oh, the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, you see how God's given him the credit, not merely thy son, but thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. And in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. What do you say? What has that to do with the church which is the body of Christ and the dispensation of the mystery? Nothing. It's so specifically a, a promise made to Abraham concerning himself and he seed that it, it's only one of those peculiar accidental links that this person has jumped on. Well, now he says, not only so, but the one body is there in the Hebrews too. Ah, he says, you've said that the one body is the distinctive characteristic of the church in the mystery. But look at this in chapter 13. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. So that proves they were in the church, which is the mystery. Well, shall we have another look at another passage which says the same thing? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Verse 1, it is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about fourteen years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knows. So he didn't know whether he was in the church or he wasn't. But well, it's nothing to do with the church. This is a man wrapped in some ecstatic vision, and he didn't know whether he was in his ordinary human body or whether he was spiritualized in some way. He said, oh, "I've called away to paradise." But that's the way this man has used the word "in the body." So in Hebrews 13, it simply means, "I suffer together with you." I know what it is to be in prison. You're in prison. And you remember that too as being also in the body. You're in the body. You know these afflictions and what they can do to a person's mind. So it's nothing whatever to do with the calling of the church and the one body. Well now, we've only got one more and that is this partakers. Uh, But when we look at uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, We we discover that these are partakers, but what of? Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Well, there was an earthly calling belonging to Israel and to belonging to Abraham. The meat shall inherit the earth. The nation of Israel are going to be restored. They're going to enter in to Palestine uh, and Jerusalem, when it will be fit for them. A lovely land, when God starts dealing with it again. But there was a heavenly section. Abraham, who had the promise of the earth, he looked for a city which had foundations. The heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly country. And these are partakers of the heavenly calling. It explains itself if you look at chapter uh, 12, chapter 11 and 12. It says, um, Verse 16, and now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. And in the uh, chapter 12, verse 22, but ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the epistle explains itself. They are partakers of the heavenly calling, which gives them the heavenly Jerusalem as their sphere, instead of the land of Palestine, which was originally the only promise made to Abraham. Well then, To add to that, I've just got here in front of me a list that I made out long ago, a peculiar um, feature of Ephesians. I'll read just what I have here because of time. The Zenith of Hebrews is in chapter 10, where in direct contrast with every other priest, Christ is said to have sat down, and he sat down alone. And it is here where Hebrews end and that Ephesian truth begins. you got that. Hebrews' last word is a seated priest at the right hand of God alone. Ephesians comes along and says, you were chosen to be seated with him. For in Ephesians chapter 2 the astounding revelation is made that the Gentile believer, under the terms of this new dispensation, is not only raised up together, but made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is Ephesian truth, a truth entirely foreign to the epistle to the Hebrews. A great deal that it will not bear has been made of the word translated the same body in Ephesians 3.6. Our version says the same body. This passage is not the only one in Ephesians that uses the prefix soon, together with. Translated in that verse, fellow heirs and the same body. Fellow is the same word as the same Got that of you? Soon. Fourteen such combinations occur in that epistle, and it is impossible to attain to a true rendering of the three found in chapter 3-6 if we ignore the remaining occurrences and their bearing upon the meaning intended by the Apostle. Here are the passages, each one being consummate with the word that is sometimes translated joint body, and which our correspondent, I'm referring to the one who's written, would make to mean a joint body together with the members of the heavenly calling in Hebrews. Now let's see. We have quickened together, jointly quickened. Raised together, jointly raised. Seat together, jointly seated. Fellow citizens, joint citizens. Fitly framed together, jointly framed. Fitly joined together, jointly framed. Builded together. Jointly build it. Fellow heirs joint heirs. The same body joint body. Partakers, joint partakers. To comprehend with jointly comprehend. The bond in Ephesians four three, the bond of peace, the joint bond. Compacted Ephesians four sixteen, jointly knit. Fellowship, Ephesians five eleven jointly holding. See, it's used consistently right through Ephesians. In the brackets we have retained the word joint or jointly, but we do not intend this as a serious interpretation. While it makes good sense in some passages, in others it is cumbersome. The great objection to using the term a joint body is that it tends to create in the mind the necessity of the presence of some other company of believers. In this case, for example, the heavenly calling of Hebrews, with which the members of the body of Christ are supposed to be joined. Seeing, however, that the emphasis on the prefix sued together, in the words listed from Ephesians, is not so much a union with some outside body, as a deep-seated equality within. The members of the body, one body, jointly, it's not outside joined to something else, but within jointly. Such an interpretation is an error. The words fitly joined together of Ephesians 4.16 can refer only to members within, not to any relationship without. Well, that is a very, very brief analysis of some of the ways in which folks have tried to blur the distinctiveness of Ephesian truth by magnifying certain things in Hebrews and overdoing it introducing terms which do not belong there, and ignoring some of the limitations. If there are very few actual parallels between Hebrews and Ephesians, the reverse is true when we compare Hebrews with Philippians. Now, what I've been dealing with this afternoon is largely negative, saying it doesn't agree. But the best way to teach truth is positive. So I want to have another opportunity next time we meet together on the Sunday afternoon and compare Hebrews with another of Paul's epistles Philippians. Oh my, you're never done with the comparisons there they're standing out all the time and the more you see the comparison with Philippians, the more you'll realise the distinctive character of both epistles and their teaching. I've just got seven here, but I may have about 70 as far as I know, I don't think we will get them all in one meeting. But here's seven of them, anticipating our meeting when we come together next time. The same key words, perfection or perdition. The same figure, the race, the prize. The better or out resurrection. The cross related to the crown and an example. Not certainty but contingency, if, if by any means. The danger, one morsel of meat those who mind earthly things, whose God is their belly. The city and the citizenship in both Hebrews and Philippians and quite a number of of others. So for the moment we'll leave it in suspense. We've examined some of the attempts to make the epistle of the Hebrews speak the same language as Ephesians, and we find it doesn't. There are words which are necessary for Hebrews which are never mentioned in Ephesians. You couldn't have Hebrews without a priest, You couldn't have Hebrews without angels. You couldn't have Hebrews without Abraham. And if you read right through Ephesians as many times as you like, you'll never find a priest. You'll never find Abraham. You'll never find angels. And you will find Gentiles which don't come in Hebrews. So that's the negative side. So next time together, we look at the parallel that is because God works in parallel lines. He saves his people then he offers a reward to them if they run with patience. That's Hebrews. He saves his people. He offers the prize of the calling if they run with patience. That's Philippians. Oh, now we're on positive lines. Instead of mingling it with the Ephesians, we say this is parallel. Just as God deals with Hebrews and gives them a crown, so he deals with the Ephesians and offers them a prize. So the next time, We shall not be debating the question, but we should be seeing as far as it's humanly possible a whole series of parallels which will make this uh, question of comparison rounded off, I trust, in a very satisfactory way.